everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 216. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Brian Turner, is here. He'll be with us in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know we do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell. You know, Click the like button. Wherever you're watching this, there's some way you can give feedback to the computer algorithms to let them know that you like this and that when people look for poetry, this is something they should find because we want poetry to spread around as much as we can. So make sure you do that even after the fact. If you can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, that would be much appreciated. Even if you listen to it on one medium, go to another platform and leave a review there too, or click the like or something. That really helps. Now, uh, we're supposed to have uh, Sunday's poet Susan Dambroff here, and she's not here quite yet. Uh, so I think we'll give her a couple extra minutes by starting out with Tuesday's poem. This is one of those weeks where we had two. We had uh, about 250 submissions for Poets Respond. With so much going on in the Middle East, it's something that a lot of people are writing about. And, uh, and so we had a lot of submissions and a lot of great poems. We wanted to share two since we could. The second poet can't be here. It's Alexander Umless. She's going to be Tuesday's poet. Um, it's going to come out tomorrow, um, but uh, she's working right now. Um, but her poem, The American Political Sestina, is here. And let me, uh, let's share this to start out with. This is um, going to be Tuesday's poem once again. And I'll read her note, uh, which is something that a lot on a lot of poets' minds right now. She says, On Monday, I took my daughter to get a, to, to get a treat after school. On the way home, we were listening to NPR's replay of the morning news that described people leaving their homes in Gaza. She asked me how is it possible that she can be eating a snack while a girl in another place is leaving home because of bombing. That night, I read Kwame Dawes' article, Political Poetry, on the Poetry Foundation website. And this is the poem that I wrote. And um, it's an interesting article. There's a link tomorrow when you get this. Uh, I encourage everybody to read that. It's it's interesting, uh, you know, what... um, what political poetry is in America, what that means. And there's a quote from it that she uses to spin off the Sistina. Uh, Kwame says, the American political poem is a safe poem. And so that brings up the question of what is a safe poem and, and what, what is a political poem here? And these are the things that Alexandra, uh, who's a veteran on the uh, Rattlecast, she was on episode, I think, number five, maybe way back four or five years ago. Uh, but here she is with the American political Sistina. Give it a listen. The American political Sistina. The American political poem is a safe poem. From Political Poetry by Kwame Das. A daughter asks her mother if humanitarian is the same thing as volunteer. They are an American family, a wine salesman, a teacher, far from political. They eat boxes of cereal, pet their cats. Sometimes a poem will begin to form in the mother's head, and life is slow enough that there is time to write it, safe from forgetfulness on the page, which is also safe, because even when it gets there, it can stay put. The cat purrs in the corner. Sometimes dinner is cooking on the stove. The National Public American Radio Station is playing news or sometimes a poem will weave its way onto the station. Sometimes it's political, but mostly it's a poem about nothing political, about hats or who wears them, or about other safe activities like eating a peach. 
or sometimes the poem is slightly political, but the message is quiet, the lines full of assonance and other beautiful American things, like sitting in a park one evening because it is a Tuesday and you can. Sometimes the poem is filled with a quote about something maybe political, but the author of the poem is an American and likes to write sustinas, and we know how safe sustinas are, all those words repeating so that the message just keeps recycling. The words in the poem are the, American, political, is, safe, and poem because the careful author of the poem is trying, of course, to write more than just words. The important stuff evades her, in part because the political is not the cereal box or the purr of the cat or anything safe. And she is driving with her daughter on American roads, and there will always be the problem of American writers wanting to make a difference with a poem and the woman's daughter is just coming home safe from school, and she asks something. She is listening to the radio, listening to the news. The political comes into the car. Why am I the one eating the snack? Safe, because of where I was born, on American soil. But the girl on the radio is running from bombs. No poem can explain this. Fair is the opposite of political. And that was Alexander Umlis reading the American Political Sestina. And it raises a lot of questions. I mean, we, um, uh, we've published, I think, since the war broke out, the Israeli-Hamas uh, war um, going on right now, uh, we've published poems from a Palestinian perspective, from an Israeli perspective, and then Sunday's poem, too, sort of from both perspectives, just taking in the, the chaos and, and the horror and, and thinking about it that way, which we'll see in a bit. And each of those poems had people um, upset about them. Um, but are we always safe when we're writing poems from this position, too? I mean, that's a question that comes up and we have to think about a lot about as well. So that was Alexander Umless with uh, tomorrow's poem. So a little preview of that. And now let's take a look at that Sunday poem. Um, I think uh, Susan is not going to be able to join us. So here we go. This is uh, Susan Dambroff. And her poem was Who? And let's take a look at this one instead. I'll read her note first, then we can play the audio. Um, Susan said about this, uh, who is my attempt to speak to the complexity and context of the Israeli-Hamas war with all of its absolute heartbreak? So um, here's this poem, and this is Who by Susan Dumbros, or Dumbroff, I should say. Who? Who more inhumane than who? More brutal than who? Who pounded, bloodied, broken? Who with more weapons than who? Who hiding, dying, mourning? Who lifeless, pummeled, kidnapped, starved, stranded? Who in a hospital? Who at a festival? Who waking up? Who going to sleep? Who without water? Who without home, without hope? Whose land, whose history, whose mosque, whose temple, whose anger, whose fear? Who, with a baby 
in her arms, running. And once again, that was uh, Susan Dambroff with Who. Uh, that was Sunday's poem on Poets Respond. Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Brian Turner. So sit tight, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Now, like I said, tonight's guest is Brian Turner, who we interviewed way back in row number 35. Check that issue out. Uh, if you would, it's still available in our archives at the warehouse. A wonderful discussion that Alan Fox had with him back when Alan was doing the interviews. Brian Turner is the author of five collections of poetry, most recently these three, uh, which I have all of right here. They all came out within the last three months. One month, one book. It's been amazing. Uh, the Wild Delight of Wild Things, The Goodbye World Poem, and The Dead Peasant's Handbook, all from Alice James Books. Uh, the other collections include Here, here Bullet, uh, which is the most famous um, book of Brian Turner's, and then Phantom Noise as well. Also a memoir, My Life is a Foreign Country. Um, he's the editor of The Kiss and the co-editor of The Strangest Theaters Anthologies, a musician too, we'll talk about that. He's also written and recorded several albums with the Interplanetary Acoustic Team, including 1111, Me Smiling, and the Retro Legion's American Undertow. His poems have appeared all over the place uh, in all the best, biggest publications. Um, a Guggenheim Fellow, he's received the USA Hillcrest Fellowship in Literature, the Army Lowell, Amy Lowell Traveling Fellowship, a whole bunch of prizes too. He lives in Orlando, Florida with his dog Dean, the world's sweetest golden retriever. And uh, here he is, Brian Turner. Hey, Brian, great to see you. Hey, same here. Yeah. You were saying all the best publications, Rattle. Rattle's the best. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks. Well, I like to think so. Um, I really yeah. enjoy it anyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's great to see you. It's great. It's been a long time. Um, and, and I think. Being a long time is something that's um, uh, appropriate too here because it's it was a big gap between books of poems. I think the Phantom Noise came out in was it 2012 or something like that. So it's been over 10 years since you had a book of poetry yeah. out. 2010 even. It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Almost. So it's great to see uh, your new poems. Before we start talking, why don't you read a poem from uh, from one of those books? Let's start with the Wild Delight of Wild Things. Okay. Yeah. From that book, I'll read uh, the Immortals. Okay. Bell shaped and translucent. Jellyfish begin their ascent from the ocean floor. They've completed a novel process in the animal kingdom, transdifferentiation. It's a reversal of the biological cycle as we know it, undoing the narrative arc, tracing birth to adulthood before the inevitable decline and death. The jellyfish upend everything we know about death in flora and fauna. At the cellular level, they grow younger when the time comes to die. They transform backwards into a nascent version of themselves before starting the process over. It doesn't mean they are incapable of dying. It's simply not in their nature. They rise to the midnight dark waters and into bands of sunlight, the way thought forms in the subconscious before burning in waves across the neocortex of the human brain. And as they rise fathom by fathom, they become lighter. As each incarnation returns, history unfolds and the world is made new. They rise into the age of agriculture with its domestication of wild grain, with the comprehension of seed to stem to fruit. They witness the emergence of cities, wheels and alphabets and metallurgy, Buddha and Confucius, Jesus and Muhammad, the age of flight and the age of information. The jellyfish descend to regenerate and then rise through it all, limpid and curious, as astronauts step upon the lunar surface and as armies kill each other without cease. Humans turn their thoughts toward Mars and beyond as the jellyfish sink down into the ancient shadow where they have always gone, 
as if death were a form of sleep, a dream from which they are revived, one lifetime to another, cycling through the stages of life as the elastic architecture of their bodies is made strange and new all at once, blooming. Starfields glimmer in the wave tops above. Sunlight scatters at dawn and dusk. The ocean is a silver film of moonlight stilling itself. And through it all, the jellyfish, the immortals, they have come to watch galaxies loosen their spiraling stars as photons shimmer on the interstellar breeze. They are steeped in time. They have learned to reinvent themselves in defiance of the body's undoing. They rise from their own deaths. They rise from the bottom of the sea. Soft bells, diaphanous and fine, the universe offers them wonder, and they gather in their multitudes to take it all in. Yeah, and that was The Immortals. And once again, we're reading from the first of these three new books from Brian Turner, The Wild Delight of Wild Things. And that's a great example um, of your style, Brian, of how much um, both science and, and, and texture are poured into these poems. Um, it's a really, really beautiful book to read uh, for that reason, too. But then such a touching book or series of books, too. Um, I assumed that that's why there was that gap between writing because of what happened with Elise. Is that um, is that the reason for the gap in the, the books of poems? I think in part, there's um, kind of the core of my life kind of crossed over in a very short period of time. So in, in 2012, my best friend, Brian Voigt, passed away from cancer at 45. Uh, he was really a collaborator. I made music with him my whole life. So when he died, I, I didn't actually, I, I, I couldn't fathom the idea that I would ever make music again, you know? Um, and then my father passed away in uh, 2015. Um, and then Elise in 2016. Um, my mother just passed away last Sunday before last. Mm -hmm. um, so we, and it's uh so, but, but during that, that period, it was like a, a wave of the people really closest to me. They all kind of crossed over and and um poetry and music in different ways were things i turned to to um not really to process it necessarily i think at first it was a way of like trying to figure out a way how could i still be in like conversation with the dead that i love you know mm -hmm. and and uh, there was also that usual attempt to kind of memorialize and create monuments in art for those i love but um but i i really am trying to figure out ways where over time to share these people I love so that others might fall in love with them. And that, and that, and that way through the imagination of others and myself, that they can be alive in the world and can be a presence and be a part of this world still. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And Elise uh, Kuznets is a poet that we published a few times as well. Um, yeah. You know, and I thought maybe, would you mind reading the poem where the, her poem that the title comes yeah. from? I think that'd be a nice, uh, a nice thing to do. Um, it was a beautiful poem and she was a beautiful poet. I really loved her work. It was so sad. Um, to hear, you know, what happened. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and this poem is where the title of the book comes from, the first book, uh, so we'll, we'll hear it in the poem. It's called Geologic. When I don't have a body anymore, when I'm ash and fragmented bone, I think about the early people trapped between one geological era and another, unfathomable. Their dust must yearn to rise but can't, so much pressure on their carbon, hydrogen, trace elements we've lost, forgotten. Will we all become diamonds? Will anything of us beyond an uncertain glimmer survive? 
Remember when we visited the animal refuge, fed parakeets in the aviary from ice cream sticks glittering with seeds, the tickle and nudge of their beaks, a perfect engulfment, the wild delight of wild things, my love. I hope we'll have that again. And that serves as the epilogue and, and the, where the title mm-hmm. comes from, of the wild delight of wild things. And the thing that's so touching about this poem, you can see the, the interest in science and, and, and that, that kind of detail. And it was so easy to imagine, you know, the conversations you had and the way that in bringing those details through in the poems, like the immortals about the jellyfish that we just saw, that that was still having a conversation with Elise, even after the fact. It was a really beautiful, touching book to read because of that. How, how long was it? that you were able to write about it? Was it, what was the grief process like and, and how did you come to, to, to yeah. be able to write again? You know, I, I think I, I was writing during, cause you know, she had cancer for several years and was living with cancer for several years. And, and I was writing persona poems at the time as a Dutch poet. Mm-hmm. And I could, at the time it seemed like an interesting intellectual exercise. And it was, I thought I could see politics in it and I was fascinated by it. But now in looking now I can look back and see very clearly what was happening. And I and I know she was so much smarter than me. So she must have seen what I was doing, even though I didn't understand it. And what it was is I created an, an alternate version of myself and of her. There's another character there. They're married. And that other character has her middle name. So it was pretty obvious. And we had a child, which we didn't have in this life. But we had a child and a, and a pet rabbit named Jet. And, um, and it was... It was a place where we could live without cancer. And I was writing poems about that at the time. And, um, but I, it was sort of the inverse of try, trying to find a way to live with and without at the same time. It's hard to um, describe. I think um, I was writing some poems that were starting to, to be in conversation with my friend Brian and then a little bit with my father, but not too much. I wrote an essay called Ashes, Ashes. It was in the Georgia Review. And, um, I hadn't written the second part of that, which the full thing is in um, the wild delight of wild things. It's a lyric somewhere in between genres, and and um, I, you know, she, I know she could probably see that if, and we both kind of knew without saying it that we were talking about what what happens to our bodies when we die mm-hmm. if we're created, for example, and then um, it was all about my father, but we could both without talking about it know that we were also sort of thinking about what might happen to her, what will happen to me later. And um, yeah, and that there would be a, there would be a, an additional part that would need to be written if she passed, you know? And yeah. so, so I did, yeah, I ended up writing about that, but it was, it was very hard. And, and then interesting, I, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but I, the more I was able to write, the more I felt like, um, like I could be in conversation with her in some way. And that's why this book, a lot of it's in the you um, sort of, uh, you know, I'm using you in a co- direct address to Elise in conversation with her. And so when I finished writing this book, The Wild Daughter of Wild Things, it was sad to me because I felt like I kind of didn't want to be finished writing, even though it's a really heavy, difficult book. But I was in conversation with her inside the book, you know, inside these poems. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so then I found it. <laughs> I was like, well, I've got to write more, but I had to find a new way into that conversation. So that led to book after book and and music. The poetry didn't really, I don't think it helped me to um, like, it wasn't cathartic in a way, you know, but, but the music did a different thing. The music helped me to kind of, um, kind of process our, our journey in my body in a way that my mind doesn't know how to do, 
but my body knows how to do it. I think the the music of it does. It's in poetry too, but I I really love making music and um, and sound itself without uh, being connected to a word uh, does a different kind of magic inside of our bodies or or medicine medicine yeah, yeah. well I, i've been thinking so much about how you know poetry is the voice of the unconscious well you've been talking about you know and and you know giving words to that is what poetry kind of is but but there's other ways that the unconscious speaks and it's fascinating to hear about how music speaks that too non-verbally um let, let, before we talk more let's read another poem from uh, yeah. the wild delight of wild things i think plasma is next all right um yeah um yeah i don't think it needs any setup but uh it's called plasma Do you remember the night spent in the cancer ward, grading essays past midnight, after the nurse inserted a needle into the chemo port on your chest, that infusion of plasma? A voice over the intercom announced each incoming trauma in code as helicopter angled down, hovering over a nearby rooftop, red lights flaring, the sky deepening from cobalt to viridian as a cloud bank rolled in. You sat upright in bed with hospital pillows wedged behind you, Privacy curtain sheltering us in a crescent of undulating fabric hung from the ceiling. For a moment, I thought of taking a photograph of you as you studied each page, your eyes focusing on the construction of thought, the apt word, the possibilities a sentence might evince, your pen scribbling notes and conversation with your students as I sat beside you holding back tears gripping my hands into each armrest as I witnessed your dedication to doing a thing right. I had to catch my breath and release it in a slow exhale. You paused then, tucking the pin behind your ear. Remember? I asked if it hurt to use the port. You said, oh, no, not this time. Besides, I don't have to hope for a good phlebotomist with this. And then your eyes followed the line from your port to the plastic bag of plasma, and just as an aside, I wish I didn't put so much alliteration in that line right there. <laughs> Too many P's there, but uh, to the bag of plasma hanging from the rack beside you. And you said, can you imagine? There are long distance runners in this plasma, tennis players, firefighters, elementary school teachers and librarians, social workers. I mean, just imagine the strength assembled in this one plastic bag. And as you said this, your hands sculpted each into the air right in front of you. Distance runners in motion mid-stride, their legs like pendulums sweeping a clock at the bottom of the hour. Dancers spinning their graceful limbs as you helped guide each through the invisible. Your palms gentle, your head tilting as you welcome them into the hum and hush of the eighth floor. All of them strangers, absolute strangers, each volunteering the very blood coursing through their bodies. And as you said this, it reminded, excuse me, and you said it, reminded you of a fire brigade, how these good souls had lined up to save you, and the expression on your face as you said this, the emotions catching up with you, I'll never forget it. How vast that store of gratitude, how beautiful the tears that poured into that quiet little room. Yeah, another beautiful poem. That was Plasma from The Wild Delight of Wild Things, one of the three new books from Brian Turner. Um, and so what did the experience of, um, of going through that? I mean, obviously, Elise and you, too, are both really deeply thinking human beings that really engage with life and talk about it. How did that experience change the way you think about life and death? Because see, it seems like it must have to. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, after writing Hear Bullet and then Phantom Noise and, 
and then the memoir, um, all of those sort of a constellation of books that were focused on being a, a soldier in combat and then coming home and then talking about the military experience of my life. You know, for years I was invited places to be, um, to talk about war and, 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 you know, I talked about love and loss and war as if I knew what I was talking about, you know, and, and I, I, as if I was an authority on the subject or something. And, and, um, and I've said this before, but like the, this world has a way of teaching us deeper truths about the things we think we already know. And, um, and I'm no exception to that for sure. And, and I'm trying to be grateful for that, but it's a hard thing sometimes because, you know, writing the way into the rest of your life, you know, you have, we each have things that happen. And then another thing happens if we're survivors and we live uh, long into this life. And I, um, you know, she, it's, it's hard because I, you know, part of me, um, I, I can hear her voice saying like, it's not fair, you know, it's just not fair, you know, mm-hmm. as she was laying in bed and I was next to her and, you know, um, and, and it's not, it's so it's just completely it's so tragic. And I, I, it's, I find it almost incomprehensible. It's, it's so difficult to answer your question and it, 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 in some sense, the question is simple, but it's just also so impossible, you know, like, how do we, how do we write towards these things and how do we, you know, how do we respond and what have I learned from this? And I, I, I guess one is that, um, that over the course of these three books, I was thinking about that question, you know, because I was thinking of my life, like it wasn't just writing the poems, just walking to the streets of America and, and walking in my life and seeing people and talking and just being in the day, like, what the hell am I doing here? Why, why am I still here? Like, what's the point, you know? Like the people that I've loved, these great souls have gone, you know, and why am I still here? What's the, yeah. And, um, and then it's interesting because part of my, one of the things I love, like Elise, and you already mentioned this is, is um, nature and science. And I, I started trying being curious about this or being curious about this other thing and asking questions about that, that thing in nature, you know, this thing in nature and the study of that, sort of rekindled a kind of wonder and um and the the doorways of wonder like finding even little ones tiny ones as each of those has helped me sort of slowly kind of come back to my life in a similar way to my dog danny like when she she was a puppy when i got her and i i can see now that i hadn't laughed for for a couple of years you know and my dog, because it's impossible to have a puppy and not laugh, you know what I mean? And like, and then my dog like helped me to laugh again, you know. So it was things like that. There are different types of medicine, but some of us wonder, and some of us just joy. There's this creature that has joy in its nature, and how could I not, you know, res- how can that not resonate in me too? Is finding finding my way. Another way of saying it, and I think I say it in the third book at some point is like the world taught me how to fall in love with the world again, and which is a way where I could fall in love with her again and keep falling in love with her mm-hmm. and, and my friend Brian and my father, Marshall, and so on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just happened to read an account of somebody who had jumped off this uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And, you yeah. know, as soon as they jumped, regretted it, you know, because there's that desperate, like, I should live 
you know, feeling. And then the struggle to, um, you know, swim with like broken vertebrae and try to stay above the water, um, yeah. you know, and, um, and then, you know, finding, you know, there's sort of like this will to live and then you find the meaning afterward or something or find the reasons and find the happiness and find the joy like this person, I can't remember their name, but, but did. And, and I'm reminded of like the whole, the whole fake it till you make it kind of thing, you know, like you have to go through these motions of life to find life again. And it feels like that's what you've been doing and throughout these books. Well, if you want to hear something, I, I'm hesitant to say I've never, I think I've told this to one person in private, but, but I think it's important. I just hope it, I hope it is useful and not the opposite of what I intended to be. And that is, um, I was at AWP in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in a hotel that was very, very high and had an interior courtyard with like railings where you could look down and see like a, um, a fountain down below. But it was so many stories down, you know, and and I I came back close to just jumping right there because it, it yeah. and and I um I remember the the reason that pulled me back then was that I happened to be sharing a, a hotel room with a friend of mine, and I didn't want him to you know have to. You know, the, I don't know. Was, I didn't want him. I, I didn't want him to have to be there for that or be around that. And and that's it was a slim thread, you know, that that kept me from doing. It. And it's been slim thread by slim thread, and then more and more. And then, and um, I, I sure hope so. I sure hope anyone listening to this who's thinking along those lines, there are slim threads out there, and there there's there there's a life ahead. So mm-hmm. you know, stay with it for sure, please. But um, but for me, that was. It was a difficult thing. It was very, very close, and um, that's you know I under I always used to um, think that I, if you asked me in my twenties, I would have said impossible um, suicide is not a thing, you know. But I, I, I get it now. I understand. But it's um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. And that story you shared with the person off the bridge I, that makes so much that resonates so well that mm-hmm. you know that no there there's more to do here you know, um, and, and maybe ways to be of service to others mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely understandable. I mean, knowing how close you were with Elise, you know, how hard it would be to keep going on. And then, mm-hmm. you know, finding a way is so inspiring and, and important, I think, for everybody watching, too. Um, let, let's read another poem. I want to make sure we, we cover a good number of them. Um, next, from the second book, you have um, the Goodbye World poem is the second book that came out last month. Um, and uh, I think the poem you wanted to read was uh, Coconut Oil from this yeah. So like all all of my, I have some love poems and sort of sexy poems, I guess, but this is kind of like that, but I, I managed to mess those up too. So it is that, but it isn't. <laughs> so let's see, uh, we'll share and find out, I guess. It's called Coconut Oil. I don't recall the PA's name, but she recommended coconut oil as a lubricant, saying, sure, the literature leans towards water-based lubes, but you can find this anywhere. Any grocery will carry it, and it's a natural moisturizer, easy enough to clean from the sheets. And so when I discover a jar in the house years later, I unscrew the metal lid, close my eyes, and breathe in a series of moments from a springtime made of fog and confusion, sunlight and surprise, chemo treatments, a trip to Hawaii, the breakers rolling in just outside our bedroom window, the night's perfume carried over the Pacific and reminding us of our time in Japan, Thailand before that, before the cancer, when the future lay wide open, Elise cupped my hips with the soft pads of her hands, using them as a break at the iliac crest, while coconut sugared the room with its fragrance. She eased me down inside of her, 
pressing back when the raw pain furled across her brow, crimped her mouth, and her palm heels nearly pushing me out as I couldn't help but think of the tumors in her bones spreading from sternum to vertebrae and then scaling the ladder of the spine in both directions, so insidious, so cruel, that cancer revealing itself by fracturing two of the bones in the middle of her back a couple of years before, and how afterward I thought of my fault, that I'd done this without realizing the danger inside of her. On a sunlit afternoon, shared in a tangle of salt and muscle, our limbs half on, half off the bed, the mattress stripped of its sheets, and Elise spurring me harder, harder, so that even now I remember it as a snap of a finger, and that familiar regret returns, lingers. So I close my eyes and breathe in coconut until the electricity shifts its current, blue and crackling, the calendar flipping through months, seasons of our maroon sheets sliding off the bed, the candle's bright tongue rising in light as she guides me down, slow, all of it so tenuous and fragile, on the cusp of pain, until the oils begin to soften and glide, and her body, easing now, gives way to the smooth motion of flesh, the two of us made one again, made strange and new and ancient and beautiful. Yeah, another beautiful poem that is Coconut Oil. And that's from the second book that Brian Turner just recently published, The Goodbye World Poem. Um, all of these from Alice James' books. And, um, and I was thinking about how, um, you know, in, in Buddhism, the Buddha understands that all of life is suffering and then goes back into the world to still suffer. And, you know, and then in Jesus becomes the same symbol to carry your own cross, like the burden of your own suffering. And in a way, that's what life is, because we all know that we're going to die and those around us are going to die. Um, how much does poetry um, play into that ability to continue living? I mean, it is to me, poetry is such a healing thing because of the way it communicates the unconscious. Um, is that for you what poetry is? It's the way to continue through these burdens that life creates. Um, you know, I was, I had a stammer when I was a child and I had a real tough time. And I say as a child, it went well into my twenties, you know, and once I joined the military, that sort of helped sort of smooth it out in a way, oddly. Um, but I, I, um, I had kind of like a freight train of language. I was trying to get out of my head, but I couldn't land a sentence on the tracks and it would just get gummed up in the works. And, um, even though I've been able to figure out a way to sort of speak aloud and be like that, I still, I struggle with this, this instrument, this thing. And it's like, I have um, like every day, I just feel like I'm fumbling through this language and the tool's not working and, and I'm trying to say something and it's just not, I'm not getting anywhere near it. But when I turn to poetry, it feels like it's an architecture that can kind of hold. And if I, if I allow, if I can, it's like, a, I think of it as a meditative practice. So it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of a, a daily meditative practice. And, and, and even when the days when I'm not doing, it, I'm reading it or writing it um, because the, the world sloughs away around the poem. And then when you're inside the world of the poem, it has an atmosphere and it's a, it's a place. And it, um, I love being in those places where I feel sort of transported and, and then made new and strange and beautiful, like in the last words of that poem. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, I, I think of it as a kind of medicine because in that way, because I think it, it feels healthy to me over time. If you ask me on any one day, it's just like, well, I wrote a poem or that that was worked or whatever. But I can see over years that it's been a kind of meditative practice. And I don't do a yoga mat thing, but I but I kind of do with language. So I sit down and and allow the imagination to wander into these spaces. And usually it's like a riff or a line or maybe an image. And it's a very short thing that I don't know what more is in there. And then that curiosity leads me into that. And and um, then I become surprised by what you'd said, the unconscious before. You know, I think of some of the Godhead or whatever you want to call it, you know, this deeper um, knowledge. Because I, 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 I hope I don't get too far out there in a sense for some, but I, I, I can't tell you where the poems come from. You know, like it feels like language when I'm really locked in. I wonder if that's like that for you too, Tim. But like sometimes it feels like, like it moves through us and it like arrives. And if we're lucky, we sort of catch some of it as it comes through. And, you know, and so it, it feels sacred that way, you know? Yeah, it really does to me too, to the point where, you know, the quality of the poem that I wrote has nothing to do with how much other people like it. It's just how much of that feeling I got to capture for a few moments. Um, and I, th yeah. I think that's a feeling that all people who uh, love poetry end up finding and feeling, but, but then most people haven't found that yet. So I'm always curious, like, how did you find um, poetry? Like, was it something that you always did? Like, do you remember the first time you felt that, that feeling? I remember for me, it was in James Longenbach's class at the University of Rochester. I was a science major. Um, and I just wrote like late at night, like it was 2 a.m. I had to write a poem for, you know, the next workshop. And I wrote something that surprised me in a way that I was like, wow, like that was in there. That is so strange. And I was like so lost in the poem. And it was that feeling that I wanted to keep recreating. Did you have a moment like that where you realized that poetry was this, was this special thing that, that takes you some meditative, meditative place that's, that's elsewhere? Yeah, I think, I mean, there have been a couple, but one of them was uh, I used to have hair halfway down my back and I used to wear a little skeleton earring and I played bass guitar in a band, uh, different bands in Fresno in my hometown. And um, I started taking a couple of poetry classes, hoping that it would help me to write lyrics for the band. <laughs> I never even thought of it as I thought they were basically the same thing. And, you know, and now they feel they feel very separate for the most part. And um, uh, in fact, the guitar player, I always thought he was much better lyricist for music than I have, have ever been. And um, they just seem to operate differently. But I was walking across campus at Fresno State and um and there was a poet who sadly passed away young, Andres Montoya. And um, he walked up to me, and I remember it was nighttime. There were sprinklers going on. I remember the moment in the trees where we were on the sidewalk, and he sort of intersected with me on the sidewalk. And he had this poem from this poet. And he was like, Brian, you got to read this poem. you know. Mm -hmm. And I read this poem, and it's They Feed, They Lion by Phil Levine. You know? Out of burlap sacks, out of bearing butter, out of black bean and wet slate bread, out of the acids of rage, the candor of tar, out of creosote, gasoline, drive shafts, wooden dollies, they lie and grow, you know? Mm -hmm. And, the, and it, it was a language, it was so strange, and I didn't understand the poem. I don't know if I do now even, but like, but in my body, there's a, like, and the working class sort of life that I've come out of and I'm a part of, you know, there was like a kind of anger in the poem that resonated inside of me that I was like, even though later I learned more about the context of the poem, where he was coming from, when it was written and where and how that, you know, those kinds of things. But in that moment, I didn't know any of that. I just had this poem 
and you know it was like it was like walking into the dark and suddenly seeing this figure that i of it wasn't human it was a new kind of you know something it was that kind of engagement with the and um and also remember i said that language was getting gummed up here was a language that was different than the language around me and it spoke to me in a way that no language had ever done you know and so and, the, and i knew there was some famous poet teaching on campus and all that but i was like yeah whatever and um but then I was like, man, I, I got to study with whoever. And I got to study with Phil Levine after that, you know. And um, to be to be fair, you know, he was a, a really big influence. Um, like I just said, but Corinne Clay Hales, we call her Connie, Connie Hales. She was, uh, you know, equally or even more of an influence there in Fresno about poetry and stuff. She really helped me on my way to, to be talking with you. I have to say Connie Hales, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that poem, you know, then... I had it in my body and, you know, it got rooted over time as it is. So when I found myself in a difficult place in my life, which was in Iraq at some point, years and years later, you know, I wrote a poem in 10 or 15 minutes listening to Queens of the Stone Age. And I thought that that poem was influenced by, by Queen of the Stone Age, but that was just wallpaper sound. I had the song on repeat mm -hmm. and I wasn't even listening to it anymore, but actually, and that, so that poem is here bullet. You know, if a body is what you want, then here is bone and gristle and flesh. Mm -hmm. Here is the clavicle snapped wish. The aorta's open valves. The leap thought makes of the synaptic gap. Here is the adrenaline rush you crave. That's the beginning of that, my poem, right? Mm -hmm. It's not syllabic or anything, but out of burlap sacks, out of burying butter, out of black bean and wet slate bread, out of the acids of rage, the candor of tar, out of creosote, gasoline, drive shafts, wooden dollies, they lie and grow. It has a very similar musical um, rhythm and pattern in it. It's not the same tree, but it's, it, well, it's, it's not the same exact plant, but it's branching out of that tree. You know, it's rooted in, in the same uh, earth or something. But it, I mean, I can feel it in my body when I read the two poems. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it, you know. Yeah, I hadn't noticed, but I can definitely hear it now. And it's that rhythm, that, that rhythm that speaks the unspoken, that, that makes poetry yeah. bodily, that makes it, it all so <laughs> worthwhile and, and yeah. worth doing. Um, yeah. let, let's hear another poem uh, from from the Goodbye World poem. Okay. Um, this one's called uh, Vigil. When I think of my father in the ICU, intubated, with whole decades of our lives tunneling in, as I try to give voice to the last words ever, and the language failed me completely. It's his expression that comes to mind, such tenderness, such compassion. There is so much my eyes have seen that my hands have done, and yet I know almost nothing. How many losses will it take for something like wisdom to set in? How many doorways into the sublime need to open for me to fully inhabit the wider landscape of the soul? There's no false humility in this, just one human being looking inward and remembering my brother's voice on the phone, that last call after a year of chemo and the doctor's death sentence coming due. My brother saying, you don't even know how good a glass of water tastes. And of course he's right. I light the candles for each anniversary as each anniversary arrives, for Elise, for my father, for my brother, votive candles for uncles, grandparents, friends long gone, each an act of memory, devotion, lament. I watch these figures move under the Buddha's statue, how they sway to the teardrop of light pooling in a well of beeswax. Do they band around me to summon and relive their time on earth? Or are they here to help me on my way in this slow crossing of mine? 
the small deaths I usher, usher in each day. As the dead whisper all that must be done, gesturing me toward them, saying, it's all right, it's okay. There is no dying of the light. There's only this shimmering dusk, this gathering of souls into the deep shadow of a mountain. And that was Vigil, another poem from the Goodbye World poem, uh, Brian Turner's second book of uh, this year. Uh, Brian, you already mentioned uh, that, that one line had too much alliteration, which is kind of funny because my uh, my uh, open mic poem later for the week is an alliterative verse poem. So if you think that's too much alliteration, s- stick around for the open mic. I love alliteration. It's just that line. You know what no, I mean? I know. Just kidding. But, uh, but, but it, it brings up, you know, what the, what is the writing process like? I mean, how much of it is the initial spark of that rhythm that you catch like a wave and how much of it is in the editing and in the revision process later? Like what is your, when you sit down to write a poem, what does that look like for you? Yeah. You know, um, you know, so I know some poets have like, I've heard one poet had like 12 of these, um, like a long shelf in the office and there were like 12 wire baskets and we would write a draft and then put it in the first hopper. It's like hoppers. And there was some, kind of, I don't know what would happen with each hopper, but there was the same work would happen to every poem till they went through the 12th one. And then it was ready for the world, you know, print it. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a system like that, you know, and it seems like every poem kind of, kind of has its, I have to like figure out how each plant grows and what it is and what it needs. And um, I know that's not helpful at all. Um, there there are some things that I, well, I guess from the very beginning, I don't even know what the poem is going to be because I don't know where it's going to end or where I'm going. So I, I'm not, I don't usually work in direct forms where I know ahead of time I'm putting this known form. Mm-hmm. I usually start with an image or a, a little scrap of sound, some phrase. And uh, I went to school in Oregon with um, Navid Alam. He's he's a, a, in Pakistan now, but and that's where he's from. But he would he taught me to walk with my poems. He used to walk with his poems, and so when he had a line or two and he doesn't know what where it's going, he would go walking. He would sort of mumble the lines over and over as he was walking to set the music in his body. And what I've learned from that, like if I know my neighbors do this when they walk by my house, they must just think with this crazy man in the house, and they're not wrong, you know exactly. But there's a big window in the front room, and it's the best room for me. I, it's it's not a big house, but and I'm not a big man, but like uh, the, if I walk three steps, bam, I hit a wall, so I got to turn around and go back. So I'm just sort of pacing back and forth in the front room, and people must see me mumbling, mumbling to myself and muttering because I'm trying to set the music in my body so that when Later, as the poem starts to develop and images come to mind, I'm a very narrative poet and very cinematic or visual poet. So once that part of the brain, the storyteller takes over, I'm hoping that from Navid's instruction that I've let my body learn and set the music so it will help guide so that the story and the songbird are in harmony as the poem is being made. Um, in revision, it's hard. I like... I try to I try as much as I can. I guess the first one when you're when you're writing to push everybody else out of the room. Mm-hmm. So it's just be in that sort of sacred space. And then once I have a poem, if it's if it's one I want to share, I don't write I don't share all the poems, you know, even if I really like the poem, it doesn't mean I, I'm gonna put it out and share it in the world. You know, some poems are for me and some poems I, I wanna share for whatever reason it might be. And um, but those are my in any case, in the second part of that is revision, I guess, is when I start thinking of like, I try to divorce myself from the poem in a sense. And it's just like a little trick that helps me. 
I try to think, okay, I already got the mystery and the magic of, uh, I, I enjoyed that, whatever that was, that meditation when I wrote it. Now there's a version. And now I, I try to separate by thinking, what does the poem need? What does it want? And then it gives me a chance to kind of fall in love with the generative process again, because then I can, then I'm open up a little bit more to um, changing it. Because otherwise, I mean, I do this, like I think a lot of people do, we write a poem, they kind of fall in love with it. And it's hard to change it, you know, from there. But that's why I'm trying, I don't always, I'm not always successful, but I try to create that bit of distance so that I can find a way to fall in love again. And with the, with the possibility, you know. Yeah, it's interesting that that concept of a public or a private poem is one that I think is really underutilized, probably because poetry is so professionalized within the college environment that we sort of only think of the public poetry as having value. Um, but but private poems, I always say, like on our critiques that we do on Friday, that, that private poems have value too. I mean, if you're, it's a poem you're writing for somebody else or for some occasion or just for yourself to come to some understanding. Um, how, how do you know that a poem is private versus public? I mean, with the, you know, the, the rise of the lyric and the confessionalism, it almost seems like everything is for the public. Um, and yet some poems really are private. So what is the distinction? If, you, if you're going to hold a poem back, what do you find is the reason usually? Interesting. I think um, between Hear Bullet and Phantom Noise, I wrote another manuscript of love poems. Mm-hmm. And I, I think part of it was I just didn't want to share that love with everybody else. I just wanted it to be, I, I didn't want it to be dissected and thought about and and, and, and have its own thing out there. And I, I don't know, I just wanted it, it, to, it's, it feels a little selfish to say it, but I, I kind of wanted that love for me. And, for, and there was... Um, there's another poet, a book of poems I wrote years ago, and I never tried to publish any of those poems in it. Um, that was about a, a, a previous relationship, and after many years of relationship, uh, that that relationship didn't work out, and and so I I wrote a book. It's one of the quickest ones I've ever written, and um, but there are a couple in there that I could would probably get in a magazine or could, you know, but I I, I kind of felt like that wasn't the work for it. The work was it was doing real work in me, and I really felt like like a, a weight was lifted off me and I felt clearer or or the, I felt like a breeze could blow through me better, you know? I felt healthier after writing him, but it wasn't, I don't I don't think the, I guess maybe the test with those, and I, I hadn't really thought about it, so you just asked this, is maybe like, I couldn't see, like one, I wanted to protect my previous partner because I don't think it's fair to her, you know? So that was my, my main goal. But looking overall, like let's say if she had passed away or something at that point, or if it didn't matter to her or whatever it might be, if it was okay to put in the world, I still wouldn't. Um, I think in part because um, uh, I don't know if they would be useful for others mm-hmm. in a sense, you know? And um, so I guess each, each it's like writing poems is sort of each one has a different test. I don't know if there's one maxim that would fit why you would not or why you would, but I think that's, it's a good I think it's a really good test to start thinking before you start to share, before we start to share them, or at least I do this, is think, why do I want to share this with others? You know, what am I hoping this will do? You know? Yeah. And, you know, if you can answer that, then you know why you're doing it and then do it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, exactly. To go back to that, you know, Buddha metaphor for what poets do, Mm. you know, um, know, the reason for coming back is to help others. And so the question of, is this going to be a help is something that we do. We, We go to some dark places as poets. And then yeah. is this going to be, I think, um, I think it was Lester Graves Lennon when he was on said that he, um, 
um, doesn't want to add noise to the world. And I, I love that that concept too, you know, of um, of, it, of something just being noise and not some kind of signal that really has value as a signal. And so um, I, I can definitely see that. But at the same time, the, the private poems have real value, too. And so they shouldn't be frowned upon or, or looked down upon just because they're for yourself or for someone else. And so I think that's a point that's always really important to share. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and well, similar with like journals and notebooks. I think it's a really good practice. And I don't share that stuff, but it, it's just part of my life and helps, you know, helps me sort of it's part of just part of my life, part of who, who I am. So I, I think it's a good practice for others to journal, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And poetry is the same kind of thing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, well, if anybody has any questions for Brian, um, please leave them in the chat windows on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass uh, pass some along. Um, we already have a couple in here. But first, let's read uh, the next poem. Um, and now we're going to move on to the third book of poems published this, uh, this fall. It was uh, The Dead Peasant's Handbook. Uh, and you want to read the opening poem from that one. Okay. It's called uh, Sunflowers. What they don't tell you about war is how much a bank ledger might shape a decision tree. The price of fuel, sunflower oil, durable goods when they're floating on an ocean with no delivery in sight. That bullets can skip along the surface of a wall like stones over water. That it's a bad idea to tape the sheet glass windows of your home, but smart to roll down the windows of a car when fleeing a firefight. That you should open your mouth to avoid rupturing your eardrums when a shockwave rolls by. The civilians are the bravest of all. See how they face the invaders, saying, take these seeds and put them in your pockets so at least sunflowers will grow when you all lie down here. What they don't tell you about war is that a soldier's oath is not only to be the one who puts out the fire, but to be the one who starts the fire to begin with. To be the one who carves a hollow center deep into the word suffering. War is born of the obscene, a disfiguration of words like love or humanity. This much we know. These things we do. These ghosts we live with. How they call out to us sometimes, asking for water. Such a simple thing, a glass of water. And that echoes back to the last poem, too. That was Sunflowers. And since I had the poet here, I was wondering as I read this, uh, why is it uh, smart to roll down your windows of a car while fleeing a firefight? <laughs> um, you know, that comes from Eliza Griswold, actually. <laughs> and um, I asked her if she would write a piece for The Strangest of Theaters when I co-wrote it. That was with uh, Ilya Kaminsky and Susan Rich, and we did that anthology. And she sent back this list of 13 things to do to know when you're in a war zone as a journalist and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, you know, she's a, a phenomenal poet, but also an amazing journalist and, and uh, done so much. Uh, and, you know, the uh, when you tape the sheet glass windows, the what can happen with a blast wave is large pieces of glass uh, that mm -hmm. you rather smaller pieces. And so it can cause catastrophic damage, you know. Um, the windows like that, you can hear things for one, but then also glass shards and stuff won't come at you. You won't get secondary stuff from the bullets coming through mm -hmm. if they come through. Yeah. yeah. From my understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's a learned lesson from Eliza. So shout out to Eliza. <laughs> well, that's yeah. well, that could save a life, which reminds me, um, I think of you all the time because I, when we gave you an interview, you dropped me off and we were sort of chatting in the car window um, as you were leaving. You said, oh, put the car in park. 
And, um, you know, every time I drop my kids off at school, I put the car in park and I think, um, you know, you might have saved them from getting, <laughs> because uh, it is, you know, it is something uh, that we should do. And uh, but I do. I seriously think about you all the time just because of that tiny moment. Let's see. So let's see. So you might have saved someone's life if they're fleeing from a from a firefight from that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's scary to say, I mean, America has its own war zones and bullets fly in America too, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. We don't have to look across the curvature of the globe to, to have to employ these lessons. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's for sure. Um, yeah. To go some questions. Uh, Nate Jacob wanted to go back to the speech, um, the speech you were talking about before. He says, was poetry having the speech therapy effect from the beginning or did poetry take time to bring about the change uh, to your speech, a fascinating talk of language and its power. So, so how did poetry help with that? Um, it's hard for me to know exactly, um, and I appreciate Nate asking the question. I think, um, I think it did have a. It was a cumulative effect over time, and also, uh, as poetry sometimes does, it starts to create community. If we start talking with others and you meet another person, there was a really kind group up in Seattle that took me under their wing. And I used to go to poetry readings and I would sign up for the open mic and my hands would be shaking and my face is normally pink, but it would just get like red, you know, just like full on nervous and scared and all that. My heart just beating so fast, voice quavering. And um, they really helped me to like put the poems in the air and they were really loving and encouraging. Um, But I think um, one of the things that I've, been able to realize from it too is that it's it's part of the signature of my voice Mm -hmm. so my interrupted and halting sort of patterns my phrasing my that's how that's my songbird voice and so rather than trying to smooth it out completely i think um having this i i alternate between these long rolling lines of sentences like this one and then others that are kind of shorter and a little bit more compact and 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 it's now i realize that's how i that's how I interact with language, and the, that's how I'm a musician with this instrument. And mm-hmm. so it's a, it's part of me, and I don't want to completely erase it, you know. Yeah, and that comes down to to what a poet's voice is too, and it's some kind of authentic way of speaking. Did, did, did you yeah. did you found it take a long time to to find your own voice? Like, were you were you writing in the voices of others for a while before you found a way to write in yours? That's something that uh, that comes up a lot with poets is trying to turn, trying to find what is authentic to them and not and that sort of um, you know soliloquizing or whatever uh, someone else. Yeah, I think early on um, I wasn't reading enough early on, and I didn't have a lot of you know this is pre-internet and there was a smaller when you would go to bookstores there was just that one case you know of books, mm-hmm. so it was it was always the same amazing poets but it was always the same ones for it seemed like years you know and thankfully now it's amazing we just have this proliferation of this wave of we live in the, the greatest time to be able to engage with other poets that we wouldn't have been able to before um yeah i, I don't know if i can properly answer that question but because uh, i started drifting into the problematics of the book selling age and stuff but um, yeah, so I, I hope I answered that enough. I don't know if I no, did definitely, that. yeah. Um, you know, just speaking of, uh, of books, I have uh, uncorrected proofs. Um, is, is my my version of it that they sent, and so yeah. we noticed. Uh, Mark Grinier noticed some little changes between the text in the book and revised. You know, and of course it says, you know, advanced reading copy not for sale, uncorrected yeah. proof. But um, but it brings up the question of, of revision two that we talked about earlier. Um, he says, uh, he asks, does that mean, you know, how far along do you continue revising the poems? Um, were some of these poems changed right before you went to publication? 
Um, somewhere. And also, um, I caught myself a couple times during this reading because I wanted to look at you and 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 knowing. So I'm looking up and I caught a couple times where I just flipped words on the thing. So I changed the words even in front of me. You know? mm-hmm. But um, but there are poems like in Here Bullet, for example, written and you know, published in 2005. And I've, I'll read those sometimes. And it's it's a really bit of a strange experience because I can look out at an audience and see people with the book in their hands. And I'll read the version that feels r- most right to me. And sometimes I'll, I'll just completely cut a whole line or I'll change a phrase. And and I know those are actually phrases that I are changes that I agreed to at some point when I was editing with editor stuff. But I just never I it always ate at me a little bit. So I would go back to an earlier version. And so I'll see people like look up and like, wait, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I try to give them a reassuring look like, it's okay, don't worry, we're, we're good. You know, but just, so I, I, I'm not actually usually, I'm not usually revising stuff, but sometimes I'll go back to an earlier version that I have in my head and I just um, wish I hadn't changed it that far usually. So it's like dialing back one resolution or something, you know? Yeah, it's funny because I've had that exact same experience. And two, from the editor's side, just looking at poems, a lot of times, you know, it happens pretty often where I'll say, you know, this poem is great, but these two lines feel off. I don't know, like the something's wrong about them. And they'll say, oh, you know, that's where I revised because my workshop group told me that those lines, you know, this didn't work. Um, and I'm like, well, show me the original. And there's something about that, you know, we're we're almost like, I don't know, like the poem knows its own truth. And and I think when we're writing, we're like excavating that thing that's already there. And so you can feel the the place where like you didn't get all the grit off or something when you're like, you know, pulling out these bones or something. I don't know how, what the metaphor to use, but but there's a way that it's it's sort of one piece and we're trying to just get a hold of it and make it, you know, what it is, right? Yeah, the poem knows its own truth. I'm going to live with that. That's a, that's, that's, that's mountaintop stuff right there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let's hear another poem. We have uh, maybe, we have two more poems left, and, and that's a perfect amount of time. So let's do the second to last one you had. Okay, this one it's a little bit longer, so hopefully uh, I don't. Let me know if we're no, we're good. Yeah, it's perfect. Or something. Yeah, it's called in the meth lab. Um, she holds a globe of fire in the palms of her hands, a fuming of poison, vaporous extracts of pseudephedrine, solvents, acetone, ethers mineral spirits, a flare of light she cannot look away from. And even as the blast rocks the brain in its cradle of bone, she holds that sunlight in her hands. Even as the words leave her, even as the molecular structure of the air comes undone around her, her hair, once dyed in ink, now lifting into flame and smoke, the words singed beyond reckoning, as concussive waves of the blast roll through the fluid nature of the body, roll through the amygdala, the hippocampus, the neocortex, down to the cities and neighborhoods of the mind, even the long forgotten afternoons from childhood, winter mornings spent shivering in the bus stop chill, all the quiet days lost to history and the watery vault of the mind. Was it lithium? Was it red phosphorus? Is that what it sounds like when the invisible becomes visible? When the air cracks into flame and the acoustic fabric of space unravels its shockwave to pour the words pain and death over her skin, over the curves of her cheeks, the tender flesh of her hands, her chest, her upper thighs, all that will be needed to be uh, all that will need to be draped in xenographs of pigskin, and the surgeries after that, after the nurses have smoothed gel over the burns, after the bandages have been changed and changed again, and more gel eased over the body 
while it burns, even in the coolest of rooms, the linoleum and the pastel walls of no help, the doctor's voice of no help either, the rest of us too stunned to speak, just sitting there with our sad faces nodding, each of us listening as she develops her story for how this all came about, repeats it, altering as needed until it's just right. So the pickup by the roadside becomes more and more real. The sleeping she did there explained, relatable, the way she woke and lit a cigarette, just as you'd expect her to do. And the way the propane bottle in the back seat, well, she's told the story. We all know now the way it happened, the way she said it all happened. And who honestly knows the difference anymore between memory and story and pure imagination? Now that it's all jumbled up and blurry, spilled sideways and gone. Who would believe her if she told them anything closer to the truth? What would they think of her? She's held sunlight in her hands. She's seen the transformation, that snap of lightning, how the mind itself catches fire. The years of her life set on fire. All the buildings, all the trees, all the people she's ever known or loved. All of us out there in the streets of the burning world within her. All of us suddenly alive once more. Even the little birds singing in the trees. The smallest of finches and sparrows. Even the pretty little doves. How they fly with their wings on fire. The trail of smoke they use to rope one burning tree to another. Yeah, another great poem that was um, in the meth lab uh, from... The Dead Peasant's Handbook by yeah. Brian Turner, just out from Alice James Books. Um, and, and Brian, uh, I guess uh, two more things, I think. First of all, I'm, I'm curious why, it's interesting, you mentioned the, the, the business of publication. Why was it that these are three separate books and not one whole book? Um, yeah. is that, that's not something you see very often. There are three books coming out in quick succession like that. And, and they are feel very related. It's like a trilogy. Uh, but what makes them separate to you? Um, well, in part, you know, I, I remember talking with Alice James and, and it's really precocious, but, but I, I hope it's helpful maybe for, for us all to, cause there's different ways as, as creators for us to be in conversation with publishing houses and, you know, and, um, and like, what is it we're doing and how is it, how are these things made and what's possible, you know? And I, and I remember kind of half joking and saying like, you know, sometimes when a poet dies, they'll get like a, uh, you know, a box set of their work, you know, mm-hmm. but I was like, can we do it before I die? You know, <laughs> and, and I, I was half joking because I was serious, you know, and, and, uh, and they were amazing. They, they took me seriously and they said, you know, let's look at it and see what's possible. And um, I assume that, you know, that it wouldn't work as a box set in terms of financially and stuff, you know, and the, just the business model of it like how many buyers there are people who are going to get the book and how many you know and and also you know some some folks might not you know when i i part of the you know i was an english major when i was in college too and like part of that was really amazing because i I could see the biology majors and you know how did they afford their textbooks and stuff it was nuts you know and so a box set becomes a price like that that gets beyond a lot of people's budgets you know but maybe you could get one book you know Mm -hmm. you know so there were several different reasons for it, but it made more, and it was kind of them to say, look, look, we can't do a box set like that in one month, but we could, we could spread them out over three months and have a, a similar kind of thing. And um, I, I, I like that too, because they, they are meant to be, 
you know, if someone wants to, they're meant to, they are meant to be connected, loosely connected and sort of, I think of it as sort of spooling further and further out. The very beginning is this more of an intimate conversation between me and Elise and also a kind of global conversation thinking about climate change. Mm -hmm. And there's a very close loss that then spreads out to family and friends and then spreads further out and gets to issues that are beyond me and my family and things like that. Um, and so, and then musically, um, the music is very different. So having some space between them leaves a little bit to sort of sort of in, experience this, then experience that rather than if they're too close together, I think it it's a little jarring because they're, they're a little bit, especially the first musical kind of work that goes to the second musical work. They're very different from each other, mm -hmm. but I, I hope they fit with the books that they're a part of. You know? Yeah, well, they definitely do. I mean, it's a great series and you can feel that they fit together, but but have that a sense of movement. And it reminds me, I mean, I um, it's the reason why we do our chapbooks, where we publish a chapbook with every issue, because um, yeah. I love the idea of a subscription model for poetry books, like physical books. So yeah. we get a new one every month. And especially, you know, to not know how it's going to be different, what you're going to get is such a thrill. I wish uh, all if I if I started a small press that did books, it would be you can only subscribe, get a new book every month or every other month or whatever, how many books we wanted to publish a year. But like, I, I think that's a wonderful way to do a small press. Um, and, and I think it, it pays off in that way. I think there's a, a real, a sense of, it makes it much more interesting to be able to get that in sequence. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's also um, on the backs of the books, there's a QR code for what's called the spirit box. Hmm. And so there's a three part video essay. That's me like out on the beach and also in my house talking to the camera about love and loss and memories. And then we get to see Elise in video and hear her and also other stories about others. So some of the people that are in the poems show up there in different ways. So so it's a really multimedia kind of thing, you know, and it's, a, it's a way too much caffeine is what I tell people. It's like I'm, <laughs> I owe it to coffee or something, but. Um, no, it's been a kind of a, a real love. And, and, the, and then I have three other books I'm working on down the road that are similar kind of, not about this very different subject, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting to see. Uh, just one last thing. We haven't really talked about the music yet. And somebody, I couldn't find the comment, so I don't know who, I'm sorry, but somebody um, asked about when we were talking about the public versus private, whether or not you, uh, if, if music, when you create music, has the same other other songs or are there, are there musical riffs that feel private, which is interesting. But just in general, I'm curious, like what your creative process is like for the one versus the other. Like, how are they the same and how are they different? Yeah, the um, oh, you mean genres, or you mean the yeah, yeah, albums? yeah, creating music and, and lyrics for songs versus writing poems. Yeah, well, like the I think the music, especially with the very first one with the wild delight of wild things, there's um, there's this twenty seven minute long sound meditation. So the other two books have what I think of traditional albums. There are songs that could be on the radio. Actually, some of them are on the radio because they've been put out on college radio and stuff across the country. But the first one not, and it's um. It, it, it's really based on waves. So there, there's human voices singing in it, myself and others. But I really wanted this idea of waves to be the main element in that. And it, it actually starts the very first piece after Elise's opening poem, Geologic, that I read earlier in our conversation. After that, the first piece is about waves. And it talks about that in the book. And then the film that's on the back starts with me walking from the ocean 
and I start talking about things. And then the music begins with the sound of waves where Lisa and I used to go. It's actually a recording of those waves where we used to um, go every summer. And then the, the last book of the three books, each of those elements ends on waves. So there's this through line. It's not overt, but if you look carefully, you can find that waves are this sort of predominant thing. And it, but to get to the heart of your question, um, there's something about chanting and sort of breathing in and out and then making these not, words sounds not connected to um, words. Uh, so it just um, it, there's something that that I found very healthy. It was very difficult to write that book. But what helped me, I think I can see in retrospect, what helped me emotionally and, and always making the music while I was doing that. And I didn't know I was going to put those two together. I was just making this music because it. it helped me in a different way that I couldn't do with poetry, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but they were part of a whole together that I felt. And now, now that I have them, I really thought, you know, it's a difficult book and I thought it might help a reader to then, because it is difficult and it doesn't resolve in a sweet way too much. There's a little bit of sweetness at the end, but not, I don't think enough where people can just feel like, Oh, okay. I feel better after reading that. So I feel like the music might be a space where they can kind of, um, come back to be recentered, you know, and that's my hope. Yeah. yeah. And while people yeah. are asking if you can play it for us, they've noticed the guitar in the back, but this is not your house. <laughs> You're no, on the road and it's not yeah, your guitar. Well, I don't think that's yes. possible. Plus we have I the, didn't know when I was there until you pointed it out. I was like, yeah, I'm at my friend. But, uh, but plus we can't really do music on uh, the live streams because of all the copyright stuff that comes up, even for, you know, when we have permission, uh, we have, I have a friend who's a blue, has a blues band. I wanted that to be the bumper music. We could not get anybody, even though he was like telling me to use it. Um, to, to allow also, it. So uh, I, but anyway, some of it's on Spotify, so they can go or other streaming channels. They can mm -hmm. look up the Retro Legion. That's the name of the band. And the Retro Legion, they won't be able to hear the clouds one that we were just talking about. But the other music, um, a lot of that's it's all out there. And there's more too on BrianTurner.org, which uh, we'll, we'll mention later yeah. again. But that's BrianTurner.org. You can find some of that there. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, let, let's close up with one last poem, Brian. And I should, before we do, I should say, because everyone's still here, please click the like button. This is the time if you haven't yet. It really helps uh, end up on the little sidebars and recommended things. And then we get these amazing interviews and poems in when people are looking for poetry. So do that now if you haven't yet. There's a lot more people watching that have clicked like on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and it really does help. And if you can share it, tell your friends to watch, and whatever you can do really helps. So go ahead and do that now. But let's hear the last poem you wanted to share, Brian. And I, I would just like to say thank you to everybody who's tuning in or who might be listening in the future. And and Tim, thank you personally. You know, um, you're a poet and you give up a lot of your time. I know you love doing it, but you, a lot of your space and magic time is is a you gift to all of us to create this stuff and like those those chapbooks that you put out that are coming out like, that's amazing it and if if the readers if you think about it those because of the the rattle community is so large that it's probably one of the best read books in a poetry in america you know um there's thousands upon thousands of people like ten thousand or twenty thousand or whatever it is goes out there i mean that's one of the best read books every month in america you know, and it's it's a beautiful thing. I, I really, on behalf of, I know many of us. You know, thank thank you for what you do for everybody. Well, it's definitely. Know? Thanks for saying that. Definitely is my pleasure. I just love all that we do and getting to meet people. Like you know, I love doing these um, rattlecasts every week. It's my favorite thing because you get to you talk about poetry with people who love poetry as much as we do. It's just great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Okay. Um, uh, Central Park in spring. In the spring. 
Framed in a chorus of buildings, the trees leaf out in green. Helicopters stir the air over the Hudson as robins sing all around me, liquid and sweet. Each melody traverses the acoustic space in a rolling wave, something similar to the arrival of an inevitable idea. It is a slow, sweet day in human history, and I am alone within it, a stranger among strangers. And there is no escaping the fact that those I love are years gone, gone long enough that I am once again comfortable in my solitude, lying back on the green fuse of grass, the earth embracing me. I'm listening to the dead and how they sing within the throats of finches and sparrows too numerous to count, their bright embellishments pleasing to the ear. The tourists wander on as if the dead they love too aren't filling the air with song, as if the dead aren't singing to us of what they've learned in the crossing, all that they've discovered in the light pouring over us, even now, right here, can you hear them? See how they fill their tiny bodies with the cool blue air, then shape it into music that changes everything. Yeah, beautiful poem to end on, a perfect one. That was Central Park in the Spring. Uh, that was from the third book, The Dead Peasant's Handbook, uh, by from Brian Turner from Alice James Books this year. Uh, Brian, it's been such a pleasure talking to you again for the first time in, in years, and uh, and I'm so glad you're putting so much creativity out into the world. I think everybody appreciates it, and it's doing good for a lot of people. Thanks, man. Thanks for all you do, too. It's good to see you. Good to be yeah. here. And I, I'm going to come down to LA. I'll knock on your door, and we'll have some food. You <laughs> awesome. Know? Please do. Yeah, and take care, bro. Poetry. Get nerdy with poetry, which is I love to do too. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Well, thanks a lot. Hey, take care. Take care. And once again, that was Brian Turner. Uh, you can find all of Brian's work at brianturner.org. That's just how it sounds, brianturner.org. So you find all three of these books, his previous books, his memoir, his music, all of that there. So go visit that tonight and, and give it a listen and give it a read. Uh, it was Brian Turner once again. And now we're going to go to our open mic. And how that works uh, is you email your poems to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com. Email them right now so I can put them on screen as you read. We can share. It's one poem each, two pages max. The shorter, the better. We're trying to squeeze as many people as we can in as possible. We'll try to get to everybody who comes in on the Zoom. Um, but do the shorter, the better. The more likely you get onto the audio version as well if it's shorter because we want to get as many poets out there as we can. Um, so email your poem there to openmic at rattle.com and then join the Zoom. I'm going to put this, if I can figure out where it is, it changes. Okay, hang on one second. <laughs> so I'm finding it right now. Where is the little icon? There it is. If I, if I make the screen too small, it deletes. Okay, there we go. So here's the Zoom link. Um, and I will put this onto the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook so you can join the Zoom and share a poem. And I'll be right back in just a moment with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Katie Dozier is here, our prompt poems editor. Hey, Katie, how you doing? Good. How are you? I was a little taken aback by going live, obviously. Yeah, well, it's good to have you, as always, right next to me. Um, so the, the prompt for this week was to, I'll put it on screen right here, it was to write a poem about a museum for an abstract concept using one of the forms Mary Ann Corbett shared last week. And it, we have put some examples. I think she, there were more than this, but there was a guzzle, 
there was a call and answer. There's an alliterative verse poem. There was um, there was heroic couplets was one of them. Um, do you remember what else? There was a I lot. I just stopped at Guzzle, so I don't remember. <laughs> you, said, you stopped at Guzzle. Mm-hmm. So do you want to uh, share your poem? Sure. You I'll have go it. ahead. You want to read it from there? Okay. Yeah. So this is my first ever Guzzle, I believe. I've read a bunch. Rattles published a lot that I love, and uh, this is my attempt. So. The Museum of the Subconscious. Outside, it is all concrete. Brutalist architects built the ugly blocks kept at the museum. But I open a Google Doc, trace the keys, ticket in hand, I race up the steps at the museum. Impressionism fills the ground floor. Van Gogh's blue swirls and Seurat's point. The world is as we see it, not how it looks. A window frames a glance outside. I wept at the museum. My head held down beside the people I paint into my dreams. A pigtailed girl rides on the shoulders of a Willy Wonka meme. Elevator numbers flash. A new depth at the museum. Poetry down on 42. Blake, Whitman, Dickinson. All here, knowing what to do. A raven, too. Lit from within, they stab me with their feather quills. Dead, except at the museum. Flashes of ivory light. Piano keys being struck from an exhibit down the corridor. Notes float in the air. A kite demands I hold her string. We twirl away, swept at the museum. I fall into an inkwell. The curator recalls the ladder. Waiting while I weed my mind, I'm looking for a flower. The stanzas swell into a vine and break the pot. I crept at the museum. Outside, I no longer frame the world just as I was told. The sun must smack the darkness for there to be any growth. As a water lily opens up in the pond, we reflect at the museum. Oh, excellent. A great use of the guzzle. Uh, so we see the guzzle form, which is a great thing to do because we have a guzzle theme coming up as well for Rattle. Uh, January true. 15th is the deadline to submit your uh, guzzles. Uh, Museum of the Subconscious, excellent. Did you, uh, I have trouble with the guzzle. You know, I, I've tried to write maybe like three in my life. And I, I don't know, the leaps between the stanzas maybe are tricky. I don't know. How is it? What was your experience like? Yeah, it was definitely, thing? I wanted to make sure I wasn't r- just writing towards the rhyme, which is always a big thing to me. And trying to make sure that each, you know, couplet also stands on its own two legs was important to me. So it was fun to get to uh, explore and to, I mean, there were a lot of museums I wanted to write about with this prompt, to be honest. <laughs> I settled on this yeah. one. All right. Well, yeah. And so that was uh, the Museum of the Subconscious. This is the one uh, that I did. And this is the Museum of Estrangement. And this was an alliterative verse, which I um, had never written a poem in alliterative verse. Uh, you know, that's the, the sort of Beowulf form. There are a few modern poems in it. And last week's guest, Baron Corbett, had a few, too, which was interesting to, to experience. And I... I don't, it gets a little bit sing-songy with the, with the alliteration, sort of, it feels a little heavy, but it's also cool. I liked it a lot. I'm going to try to do this, like, alliterative verse sonnets sound fun. You know, I might try this a lot more, but this is a, the Museum of Estrangement. Look how even the last of light around a rainbow leaves the room. It was God's great promise not to go, but the doors decide the daily hours now that no one's here to notice. What's left are locks that lock themselves, and a clock that counts the careful minutes to which the cobwebs and the corners cling. Although the air arrives, it also leaves, through the vaulted vents of the building's veins, that practiced pacing is not impatient. It's the breath of sleep, the barely breathing movement in and out, an ear to the mouth to be sure. But still, the overwhelming sense is stillness. The display stands stand empty, 
The curio cabinets are covered in cloth. Even the sadness has been stuffed, stuffed in a sack, dragged out into the dark night, dead. That is the museum of estrangement in alliterative verse. And so alliterative verse apparently, um, you know what, you want to have four beats per line, although I did five a few times. And then, and then these breaks, I, see, I had to learn about all this before. <laughs> I don't it. know about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remembered my Beowulf, but it's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a while since Beowulf. And so you either have two, you know, it's rainbow around the rainbow leaves the room so you have you have two on one side of this little break and one on the other but you can go either way which mm. apparently is how is how literary verse works so well, there you go you went a very good way i really liked that that's <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot so you don't have to share prompt poems though of course you can share poems about current events you can share poems about uh, that you've written recently that you've published recently that you're proud of whatever you'd like to share uh, feel free to we'll get to as many people hopefully everybody who's here you know we have we have time uh, so, but do make it quick. It's a, once again, it's a two page max and try to be on the shorter side if you can. Okay. So let's go first to, I saw, um, hang on, let me mute and make sure you're muted when you're not speaking as well. I thought I saw, uh, Susan, uh, there she is. Yeah. Let's go to Susan. Cause apparently there was, our signals got crossed. I hope I didn't email like an old email address or something. I thought I, but I'm here for a few minutes, so it was wonderful just to listen. <laughs> well, I'm so glad uh, that, you, that you could join us, too. And, and uh, do you want to just talk about the experience of writing that poem uh, now that you're here uh, a little after the fact? But there's nothing wrong with that. What, what was it like coming up with that that thing? Because the issue with with poems about, you know, such a polarizing event is that really, you know, you we talked about political poems and, and, you know, how political poems are safe, but, but it is, um, you know, in the America anyway, where you're not going to be dragged off into a, you know, a camp for writing a poem. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you have to deal with people being upset about what you write. And we had a poem from the Israeli perspective last week. And then a few weeks ago, we had a Palestinian perspective poem. And this is sort of both sides looking at it equally and how awful everything is going on. So, so how did you come to yeah. this, the use of this poem? How did the poem come to be? Well, this is one of the po a poem that just dropped for me, which doesn't often happen for me I tend to have to work it but um I think I was just wrangling with a lot of different emotions and and the polarization of what's going on and as a progressive Jew I was trying to grapple with seeing both sides to the to it as a human issue um and you know I didn't want to mention that I was a uh, a Jew because I didn't want people to come to it with any of of that polarization. I just wanted to be able to um, land in it as a prayer for peace. Um, and that's kind of how it came to me. I, it just kind of rolled out as looking at, you know, the inhumanity of everything and then just getting to all the innocence in this, all the innocent people um, and, you know, ending with the woman running with the baby in her arms because both sides have children and yeah yeah it's a really well done poem voicing the moment uh, since you're here do you want to read it again even though you know we had oh. it before but let's do it live too if you don't mind okay thank you okay who who more inhumane than who more brutal than who who pounded, bloodied, broken, 
Who with more weapons than who? Who hiding, dying, mourning? Who lifeless, pummeled, kidnapped, starved, stranded? Who in a hospital? Who at a festival? Who waking up? Who going to sleep? Who without water? Who without home? Without hope? Whose land? Whose history? Whose mosque? Whose temple? Whose anger? Whose fear? Who with a baby in her arms running? Yeah, just such a beautiful poem, Susan. Uh, that was a uh, Who by Susan Dambruff. And it goes perfectly with what um, we were talking about with Brian Turner, you know, with the way that the, you know, it's it's speaking through the rhythms of the body, like the unconscious. And that's where that poem comes from. That that repetition is so powerful because it's so bodily. A really great example of what poetry can do. Thanks so much for sharing that and for sticking Thank around, you. even though we missed you the yeah. first at uh, the beginning. Thank yeah, thanks. You. Thank you. Yep, take care. It was kind of Susan Dambruff uh, with Who. That was Sunday's poem. Uh, now let's keep going, rolling through the open lines. Uh, next, let's go to uh, Kurt Lux. I'm not sure if I'm saying your name right, Kurt, but it's uh, Kurt Lux. That is correct. In Germany, it would be Luke's. Ah, well, great. Well, I'm glad to see you. You've been on before. Uh, I think we published a poem of yours, didn't we? Uh, a while ago in Poetry Robert Spong, Bly died. I, yeah, I did a elegy for Robert Bly, and you were kind enough to have me on for that. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you could join us again. What do you have to share? I have a sonnet. Mm hmm. It's called The Oldest Hate in the World. Um, I don't normally write things that are topical, and I don't mean this to be political. Mm -hmm. I just felt it was an aspect of it that needed to be said. Um, I don't mean to blot out anyone else's humanity or suffering, but this is the part of these horrors that are going on that most struck me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's hear it, definitely. I'm looking forward to it. The Oldest Hate in the World has returned. You're blind if you don't realize that's true. In three millennia, what have we learned? The only good Jew is still a dead Jew, horrifically killed in madmen's rages. Their crime is simply wanting to exist and thriving amid hate down the ages. Despise them, slaughter them, yet they persist. Whether or not they were ever chosen to bear their thoughts of God into a world that now sits aghast, stupefied, frozen, with the endless pogrom again unfurled. If we don't defend Israel now, then when? My God, my God, it's happening again. Yeah, great sonnet there with a really chilling last line. Um, really wonderful use of that couplet. Thanks for sharing that, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. Yep, take care. There was a uh... Kurt Lux with the oldest hate in the world. Um, next, let's go to um, let's go to Paul Mitchell Bernstein. Hey guys. Hey Paul, good to see you, or at least hear you. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as it were. Uh, yep, yeah, another Jew on the on the cast tonight. I'll start by thanking you two for all the uh, streams you do, Brian. Thank you guys and. Uh, yeah, it's really great. I've learned so much, and it's so inspiring. I appreciate both of you doing it. Well, we appreciate you um, here. Leaving great commentary all the time, too, Paul. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Um, so I also attempted a guzzle, and I also had guzzle trouble and um, <laughs> and fell into um, rhyme, as I often do. But 
I think I manage the couplets, I manage the line length, I manage the independent but somewhat connected. And then uh, somewhere I read that I was supposed to mention myself in the last couple. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot oh. of rules which are often not followed. So I think when we do the guzzle issue, it'll be, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how far the variations go. But yeah, those are the, the general themes. And then mentioning yourself at the end. Did you mention yourself? You know, end? I wanted to, but I we was like a lot stronger. Yeah. I think I went with we. I had multiple versions, but... Well, you, you can also reference in the same way that, um, you know, like Basho named himself after the, the tree outside his hut. Yeah. You can do some kind of, it's easy with your name's green. Because I can just drop any green. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? You have too much of an advantage yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's and harder, so it should be it's good harder when your name is Bernstein. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's hear it here, Paul. I have it up and ready to go. Is there a title? I, I don't see the title. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the title is uh, The Museum of Peace. Ah, The Museum of Peace. I'm going to type that in. We need that museum right now. We do. We definitely do. Museum. I'll try to spell it right this time, too. Of peace. Okay. (laughs) Let's hear it, Paul, whenever you're ready. Okay. By the way, it's (laughs) (laughs) P-I-E-C-E. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The Museum of Peace. Stone angels gaze down upon the main hall of the museum over Grecian urns of sugar palm, mosaics of ash and ruin. Our sacrament, our temple, our great white hope upon a hill of war held holy, the only honor for which innocence is killed. Peace rises like a guillotine of hope. Again and again, its blade of glinting promises shine like a phoenix or an omen child. Reverend benefactors flock, drawn by the scent or debt of blood, led by a diversity of ash-gray blazers, well-groomed and young. Unseen eyes of ancient deities line the stanchions and eaves, where rooms lay littered with heroes' bones and the silence of thieves. Chiseled in stone above the doors where you enter the main hall, the words, for power is made perfect in weakness, St. Paul. Uh, excellent. Love the sounds in that, Paul. Really great music. That was the Museum of Peace by Paul Mitchell Bernstein. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Really beautiful. And really smart reference with St. Paul at the end. I wish there was a St. Katie I could reference. (laughs) Maybe there is. Have you (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Paul. That was great. Thank you. Paul Mitchell Bernstein, once again, with uh, the Museum of Peace. Uh, Next, let's go to uh, Jimmy Pompas is here. I haven't had Jimmy on in a while. He was the main guest about eh, three years ago. Of course, we published his uh, chapbook of poems, speaking of our chapbook series. Hey, Jimmy, it's great to see you. Yeah, I just came to listen. Uh, I heard you were the second best Zoom moderator in the country, so I just wanted to (laughs) listen in a bit. Excellent. Yeah, he's going to see you. Of course, the best is Jimmy Pompas, who runs a great Zoom. Is it Wednesday nights, Jimmy, or Tuesdays? When is that? It's Monday night. Oh, is it? No. Yeah, I think it's so difficult for me, you know, because I want to be here, but now I'm exhausted, so I'm not in the reading mood. But I'm enjoying Fiji. Do you like my Fiji background? I do. It's great that you're you're enjoying Fiji. It looks beautiful there. I don't know if you're dressed for the weather, but... <laughs> I wear a tie every week. You're going to try that, Tim. Uh, so, right, we'll let the readers go. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. So do you have anything to read? Well, I could... Post, post on that, but I, you know, no, that's, uh, I just came to listen. That's ah. okay. Okay. Well, it's good to see I, you. I, I can't get uh, I'm just relaxing. And... I think I forgot to say to everybody, too, you can just keep watching on the Zoom if you don't have anything to on share. The, on I mean, no, see. <laughs> Yeah, you can keep watching on the YouTube where you get to see the poems too, um, and uh, its stream keeps going there. So if you're, if everyone, if anybody, after you read a poem too, you can go back 
to the YouTube and then you get to see the poems and, and you get the bumper music and all that yeah. kind of stuff too. A little bit more managed over there. But yeah, it's good to see you though, Jimmy. It's always fun to see you pop in. Good to see you. I also appreciate what you do. It's great. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, well, that was Jimmy Pappas. Do look back at his episode. If you haven't read his chapbook, um, you should go read his chapbook as well um, and all the great work he does. Uh, over at his own Zoom readings, which he does apparently Monday nights too. I really thought it was a different day. But anyway, <laughs> thanks, Jimmy. All right, let's go instead to, let's go to Dick Westheimer. Ah, you caught me. I was just typing a note into my YouTube about how wonderful <laughs> Jimmy's chapbook is. Oh, it and, is And great. his Monday night reading, which I have to leave at 8 o'clock so I can come over here. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Sorry, Jimmy. And that chapbook, which I, for some reason, blanking, it's, it's uh, falling off the Empire State Building is Jimmy Pappas. It is a great chapbook about his father and, and family. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. Um, I, I did note, as you were talking about the uh, YouTube, the problem with uh, rights is you let me sing on my Rattlecast interview because I have not, no, no, um, no, no representative with BMI and, and yeah. And well, even folks, you know my so. friend Greg Jones and the Greg Jones Band, um, they have they do CD Baby like self published CDs, and even that though we could not get past that. If you look, there's one episode that we did with using his bumper music, and it was like episode seven or something. And it, there's ads because we we couldn't figure out how to. Even though he's right, like sitting next to me, we couldn't figure out how to get his permission across to YouTube. So, anyway, uh, that didn't work out. But, um, uh, but shout out to the Greg Jones band. It was a very fun uh, uh, yeah. thing. We have a pickleball tournament coming yep. up. Yeah, you better hope I don't <laughs> grab the guitar then and start playing and get you true. into trouble. You definitely could. Well, anyway, Dick, so, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Yeah, tonight? so I, 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 uh, I sent you to take the one that's called Museum of Fear. Okay. Interesting. Museum of Fear. Yeah, and it's alliterative. I, I I did not catch the whole thing about what alliterative verse was. I just alliterated a lot, and <laughs> and and it fell into this rhyming scheme just mm-hmm. because that's what happened. Yeah, well, I think that's totally fine. Um, but just for everybody wondering, what I learned today because I actually <laughs> looked it up is it's a it's a you know three uses of alliteration of the same the same front sounds of you know some consonants within each line. So it's supposed to be three, and you can sort of mix it up in a certain way. And traditionally, four beats per line. So mm-hmm. so it's a it's a beat based alliterative thing, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, it's interesting. There's some like Auden wrote a couple poems like that that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a few other people. So it, it's interesting. But anyway, this is Museum of Fear. The other one that I thought of is um, Mathia Harvey has this wonderful alliterative, uh, The Future of Terror, Terror of the Future, mm-hmm. which I was already thinking of because of that whole political poetry speech. And I think those are the best political poems after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and about the whole like war on terror and our reaction and the, the paranoia. And she used is intense alliteration in those poems. Um, I wish you would send me some to publish in Rattles. We could have her on as a guest on the Rattlecast, but that's beside the point. But if anybody hears this, you can tell Mathia to send me some poems. But anyway, uh, let's hear this Museum of Fear, Dick. I'm looking forward to it. Museum of Fear. And I also struggled against the sing-songiness. And I think I failed because I have a, this is all end-stopped, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it works out. Museum of Fear. Enter here, says the sign. Take a ticket, please. They were expecting me. They know all my fears. Like Virgil in the Inferno, my guide shows me infection, inflammation, illness, disease. On the floor below the bellows of hell, Basil Bub laughs at those dying to breathe. Ahead, 
its war in its wanton blood, the wounds and the weeping its weapons yield. This hallway contains death and its ash, a darkness that's drawn by undoing and dust. In the room to the left, there is love and it's losing, the breakup, the longing, the sorrow, the grief. On the floor above, in ink, oil, and stone, paintings and statues that all look like me. I see each as a mirror that clearly shows it's only me in the room. It's me there, alone. Oh, that's a great poem, Museum of Fear. And I think the alliteration works really well. When when uh, Marianne was reading that, I noticed I, it's a different kind of music, but the music is so strong. Um, and I think it works in that poem too, Dick. And it, and, and because you're, you're using all those sonics, it just leads you in directions. I didn't know I was afraid of being alone until I, <laughs> I wrote this poem. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating. Really good work. Thanks for sharing that as always, Dick. It's always yeah, a pleasure. Definitely haunting. I've been reading a lot of Poe, but I feel some Poe in that poem. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of that too. Thanks, there for sure is. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Dick. It was Dick Westheimer with Museum of Fear. Now let's go to, let's go to Brian O'Sullivan. Hi, Tim. Hey, okay. Brian. Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you. So, uh, so what do we I have tonight? A... Yeah. Yeah, I have a brown poem, um, if you have it. Yeah. It's, um, it is King Lear's Museum of Nothing. It's a, <laughs> um, it's a four-beat alliterative poem that accidentally is also a sonnet. Um, <laughs> weird. Excellent. Well, I love the title, first of all. That's great. Well, yeah. thank you. <laughs> all right. King Lear's Museum of Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. That's what... We muttered before we lost our mind and meandered our way to our museum here in the middle of nowhere, the hall of unbeing where we keep a light on burning for you. You young, you old, you meek, you bold, all arrive when your bells toll. Here that is nowhere, here that is everywhere, in a moldering photo album of faces half forgotten, in the frozen cliffs between breaths, and in fires that blaze, leaving nothing, save the notion of resurgence and this mad prayer that from nothing may come maybe everything. Oh, that was excellent. King Lear's Museum of Nothing. I just, I really like, and it makes me wonder, um, and Katie stepped out to get the bread. She's baking bread right now. <laughs> but um, but I wonder why alliterative verse isn't used more often. It's so beautiful. And I think both your example and Dick's, um, I, I wonder why, maybe we need an alliterative, you know, revel why is rhyme better, you know, used more than alliteration? I don't even know. Um, well, you just one had to embrace the sing song and decide it's incantation instead of being sing song. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. That was great. Thank you. Yep. Thought. Yeah. Sullivan uh, with uh, King Lear's Museum of Nothing. Come on back. <laughs> so uh, here's Katie coming back. <laughs> Was the bread done, Katie? I am really glad I stepped out and did it because it needed to come out. It's perfect. Ah, excellent. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we have we have uh, we have uh, beef stew made yesterday. It's Which you made. You should give yourself some okay, credit because it's amazing. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we made some beef stew yesterday. Katie made some bread to go with it. Okay. <laughs> Next up, let's go to Laura Berg. Hello. Hi, Laura. Great seeing you again. Yeah. Well, last week I missed because I was um, actually on a getaway to New York City to visit museums. Oh, how fun. <laughs> That's perfect. So I, you know, on my return and today I 
but I misunderstood a little bit the prompt, but nevertheless, it is about a museum and it is fresh off the, you know, I'm just writing it now. Oh, excellent. That's so, so it's timely. Okay. But yeah. it's a real museum. It's a real museum. <laughs> well, that's fine. What museum, what museum is it? One with a physical existence. Mm -hmm. So I was in the Guggenheim. Ah, excellent. Yeah, so, we were there. But, Did we go there? No, we didn't. No, we went to Melbourne. now we're jealous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think it, but, I mean, it's not, it's not very accurate, but here we go. I was, I was, I was trying to do lines that are more, um, a little more independent of each other or moving out in different ways instead of it being so logical like it is sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so excursion, the goop. Ascending, descending the spiral nature interior, I swiveled toward metaphor, Renoir's asters, a girl's watering can. Light from the actual window resets the eye as in cleansing the palate. Spires, towers, tatters, a rimmed, disc-shaped park. Gaze out, gaze in. A simile, Matisse's, like these saffron circle-dancing spirits that lift. Gaze in, gaze out. Rest on a bench under gold-cut paper and his stars. What flickers rise again? to track the fauna into a poem, a shining rack of horns that branch as if a tree of life, the animal beneath the banister gallops to its own sonata, disappears into type. I can't bring myself to aim, let alone to release my arrows, not into this heart. I run with it, I leap. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Excursion, the Goog, and now I'm twice as jealous, yeah. Laura. Oh. <laughs> Excellent descriptions. We definitely have to get to the Guggenheim. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I hope you had a great trip. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Take care. Here's Laura Berg with Excursion, the Goog. <laughs> um, I love that title, too, the abbreviation. All right, and next up, let's go to, let's go, let's go to, um, let's go to Audrey Friedman. Hi, everybody. Hey, Audrey. Hi. Great to see you. Thank you. Um, okay, so I am going to read a revision of a poem that I had read here in its earliest stages. Oh, interesting. Um, it used to be called The Old Bag. Mm -hmm. um, I submitted that to Drifting Sands, a high bun journal. Oh, great. And, uh, they accepted. This is the second time, which oh, is congratulations. great. What, what I really want to recommend anybody practicing this form to submit. There's a guest editor for each issue, and the time that they have put into fine-tuning the submissions that they are going to consider accepting are amazing. It's like having a private tutor. Um, <laughs> It's it's fabulous. It was a great experience. That's Very really... thoughtful and specific feedback. This issue is issue twenty three, edited by Marion Clark. So so that was a <laughs> drifting sands, a high bun journal. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. Okay. I never understood why you gave her that nickname. You called her the old bag. I called her grandma. Sure, her leathery skin looked weathered after so many summers at Rockaway Beach. But I still don't understand why you gave her that nickname. 
You warned me not to call her that to her face, and I listened, as I always did. Years later, you told me that she had died. She was in her 90s by then. You told me to stay home with my kids, no need to go to the funeral. Again, I listened and cozied up with my husband and two toddlers, somewhat relieved to have avoided the trip from Rhode Island to Brooklyn. But still, I was conflicted. This was my gentle father's mother. My being there would have been more for him than for the grandmother I barely knew. But daddy, like me, was ordered not to grieve. Brown bag sucked up by a cyclone, assault, retreat, replay. Um, yeah, beautiful poem. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's a wonderful high event, Audrey. Thanks for sharing it. What were the changes that you made primarily to it? Because it's so wonderful. Um, I think there was some pruning and uh, a big part of it was the title. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, having that leap. And I, I yeah. agree with every suggestion that she gave me, but one, and I stuck to this. Well, good for you. <laughs> that's important, too. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely how... <laughs> Yeah, definitely how we should do it. Thanks for, for sharing and for, for uh, showing how it's done, too, uh, clinging to your guns with that one. But then the title is such a great improvement because you want that leap, too, between the title and the prose and the haiku. There's all those different sort of cuts within the cuts within the hybens. So thanks. Excellent yeah, example of that. Thanks, Audrey. Wonderful poem. Thank you. Yeah, it was Audrey Friedman with uh, I Never Understood Why You Gave Her That Nickname. All right, next up, let's go to uh, Joe Cottonwood. Okay. Hey, Joe. I, I did a, the Museum of Transport. Interesting. Uh, it's a call and response uh -huh. in the form of question and answer. Huh. Andrew, and, I'm glad um, someone did that because it yeah. was an interesting form. You don't see that often. And and I liked it, the use of it in the book. So it's yeah. cool, going to be cool to see uh, what you did with it, Joe. Well, <laughs> I've never read one aloud before. I'm not sure how to do two voices. So... <laughs> I'm making this up. Well, just take a little hit of helium before each. Thank you. Yeah, let's hear it. The Museum of Transport. Where is the red canoe? Lashed to the roof of the van. And the van overheats, stalls in Sacramento. So kids and I buy ice cream and explore a paddle wheel riverboat converted to a hotel. Kids like it? Meet a man, shaky on a cane, shows them what used to be the engine room, says it was stinky and scorching. Like our van, kids say. <laughs> now the room is a wine bar. Old guy, as a boy, he rode these boats up and down the river, says sometimes they blew up. So the van starts. Not yet. So nearby, we walk to the railroad museum, step into a Pullman sleeper car, feel it rocking. Tell the kids, not so long ago as a child, I rode one just like this. It rocked. Then the van starts. Runs until Placerville, next to a shell station, vapor lock, Kids and I 
pushed to a pump. What do the kids say? They're used to it. Do you get there? Yep, Finnan Lake. And the red canoe? Patiently waits, never breaks. We untie, bring her down. Is it worth it? Sometimes driving freeways, the brain has a vapor lock. Here, the antidote. We paddle, we glide. Cool night air, full lunar light splits the water, smooth as syrup. Ah, frogs peep, campfire murmurs. It's a long road to the moon, but someday you may travel there. We toast s'mores. And the red canoe? May she never be history, never museum. Oh, that is an excellent poem. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Joe. I love the way that you use the call and, or question and answer, I should say, I guess, to, to tell this, the story. It's that wonderful. Yeah, I want to go on a road fun. trip. That sounds fun. <laughs> that does. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Joe. That was great. It was Joe Cottonwood with uh, the Museum of Transport. Now mm-hmm. let's go to uh, Carla Schwartz next. And me? Hey, Carla. Yeah, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. What an what an amazing night, uh, amazing interview earlier, and so forth. And um, I um, I'm still working on my prompt poem. Okay. But <laughs> which is really interesting because uh, you know after hearing all the different forms that you all have taken, uh, then it gives me a lot of ideas. For which way do you think the, you're going to go with it after yeah. you've heard some? Well, I started like three different museums, and <laughs> um, <laughs> and but the but one of them that I was dealing with is you know a person who says some pretty often wild things and now i realize that the call and response might be a very cool way to do that so yeah very excited looking forward to that right so instead i decided i would uh present to you this poem that i wrote uh that won a prize recently and i actually wrote it as a prompt for the rattlecast uh for uh rachel custer's last spring Mm -hmm. um and so uh, the prompt was something about writing about an ancestor. Ah, and mm-hmm. so um, my poem is called Pat Schroeder Was Our Mother. Oh, and okay. I, wrote, I, I wrote it after she died. And I refer to a number of quotes uh, in the poem that I'm not going to read to you now, but uh, most of the things that I'm referring to in this poem are things that she said hmm. that one, one way or another. Yeah. I want to be ash. I want to be a doorstop. And if you stick to your word, I'll call you Teflon. I want to be, if you don't stick to your word, I'll call you Teflon. I want to be ash. I want to be a doorstop. I'd be your mother and yours and yours and yours. I want to be ash. I want to be a doorstop. I'm no god, but crack sunlight through your clouds. For all those who follow my footsteps, I'll stick out my neck. Make me your doorstop. Give me half a seat and think that's half a voice. 
I can stand and shout. Oh, you'll hear my voice. You can give me shit, but I'll say it's my choice to eat and swallow what you give and spit it on your feet. I've been a working woman, so clean house as I see fit. When the house burns down, ashes, ashes, I'll be in it. Oh, that's a powerful poem. Thanks for sharing that. And congratulations on winning that award, Carla. It's yeah. well, well deserved. Uh, well deserved. That's a great poem. It really is. Thank thank you so much. Uh, that was from the New England Poetry Club, and I'll put a link in the chat. Now that I yeah. Can... yeah, please do. Yeah, wonderful poem. Really powerful. That, that ending was sort of one of those surprising but inevitable things, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, great thank work. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Good night. Bye. This Carla Schwartz with Pat Schroeder was our mother. And that is going to be it for the Zoom. Thanks, everybody, for shared poems tonight. Uh, I do want to share, I like to share Ted's because he can't uh, join the Zoom, but he's here. I saw him earlier. Let's, uh, and, and as always, Ted shares an interesting photo, which I have no idea what the uh, the point is. So let's see what this is. These are two shoes. Or two two moccasins, or I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, from a museum display. So we have a museum of some kind, I think, inspired by this. I can't quite see. It says pa- pair of sandals. Um, after a dog chews. No, it doesn't actually say that. <laughs> and there's a date I'm trying to see. I can't quite see it. It looks like 3000 BC. Is that what that really says? I can't quite see. I think that might be. I think be. that's right, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, let's hear that. We'll do the poem. Let's hear it. The Museum of Flip-Flops. Oh, I love that title. I've had this museum before. (laughs) I grew up in Florida. (laughs) The Museum of Flip-Flops. They don't come in pairs. The ones with melted soles. Stuck. There's always a story. The roughhouse and trying to peel off. Surviving ones are still centered on the mantle. Intrigue after intrigue they manage to attract. And they can't plaque duel to a precise time. It's always now or circa. (laughs) <laughs> uncouth sorry it's hard not to laugh it's a good one <laughs> uncouth scuffled now is blurred by hostile wind it blew around like the glot gvalet i don't know i don't know they try to weigh down human cannot anchor such lines design for light use is no longer there sparse set in lifting them causes nameless the pressing on dusty walks couldn't muster dialectics long blown for making pairs to use to solidify freedom of footwear, to avoid grit on the tender skin, sharp slits now explode and tear into the populous rubber. <laughs> Three holes on the slipper dissipate like bro. Oh, thanks a lot, Ted. I can't speak all these words. <laughs> Bryophytes. Straps fly away, aimless in the sacrosanct desert. Desert. <laughs> the curator could only exhibit distress on the empty midsole. That was really funny, and I also butchered it. But hopefully, that was entertaining. Well, they're flip flops. It was meant to be casual. So that's true. It is casual. Once we get past the two and a half hour mark, it's all casual. Casual. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. That was wonderful. Really enjoyed the museum of flip flops. I love going that direction. Um, yeah. So let's see. So that's going to wrap up the uh, regular. Show. Let's do the. Let's talk about what the prompt is going to be next week, Katie. Do you remember, or should I just read it because it's a distance? I don't know if we. Okay, I think it is. <laughs> now that you've pulled it up, I can pretend like I'm not reading it, but I am. You write a poem about one of your fears. Ooh, a poem about one of your fears. And of course, that is because next week is going to be a Halloween-inspired mm-hmm. show. We'll talk about that in a second. 
But so, you know, try to scare us a little bit with a poem. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun. A poem about one of your fears. Yeah, I'm very excited to uh, to explore one of these. I have a few, so there you go. we'll see which one wants to pop up for the Halloween episode, which we'll I'm really see. looking forward to. We'll see which one haunts your dreams. Okay. <laughs> no, no haunting of dreams, <laughs> just good dreams. <laughs> okay, and now it's time for the Saiku really quickly. And this is the, the Saiku. Let me pull up the article. Um, this is an interesting article. It is from Stanford Medicine. And here we go with this. Let me make it, try to make it so you can see. Again, I, okay. Ketamine's effect on depression may hinge on hope. And so there's this interesting issue because they give people ketamine, and it, which is a drug that's from the 60s, you know, it's psychedelic and mm -hmm. gets your mind all loopy and stuff. And so they, how do you do a placebo with that? You know? <laughs> I mean, and so, so they, you know, they showed that it, it, to, to demonstrate how it works, you know, versus a placebo is tough because you know if you got it or not. You yeah, know? not ambiguous. So what this research did is to cut out the placebo or use a placebo and actually have a controlled experiment. They gave ketamine to patients who were undergoing surgery under full anesthesia. And mm -hmm. so they found 40 people who had surgery coming up that were also depressed, mm -hmm. gave them ketamine while they were um, under. So they didn't even know. Hmm. Um, and then asked them how the depression was doing two weeks later. And it turns out that everyone who thought they had ketamine um, had better mental health by far. It, mm. it cut their depression in half thinking that they had taken ketamine. Wow. And yet, no difference between the placebo and ketamine. <laughs> so their interpretation of the study is that um, the hope of like thinking you were given a drug that might work mm -hmm. is what's actually causing the effect that making you feel. So having hope allows you to feel some relief from your, your major depressive disorder. Hmm. And so that was what the study found. And here is my little psyche about it. Hope. The placebo works. Aww. Hope the placebo works. That is a psyche. Yeah. Emily Dickinson would like that too, I think. <laughs> she would. Yeah, that is a psyche for this week. And that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, as always, for um, sharing your poems and enjoying poetry with us. Now, uh, next week's guest from the Rattlecast is going to be... But not there. We gotta go this. this there. It's gonna be right here. <laughs> Christina Callery. And now Christina Callery has a book called Adult Night at Skate World. We published the title poem of that way back in issue like 35-ish or so. Um, it's a great book, but she also hosts a paranormal podcast called Shadowlands. So I want to talk about creepy stuff, creepy poems. In addition to Adult Night at Skate World, what sounds like it could be a zombie book. <laughs> but I don't, it, it's actually not. But um, it's going to be a lot of fun talking to her about um, paranormal stuff. As people have known on the show, I've mentioned sometimes, I kind of model this after Art Bell's show. I loved Art Bell, all the weirdness when I was working the overnight shifts. And uh, I love strangeness and, and tales of the uh, absurd and bizarre. <laughs> and so I'm really excited to talk about that with a host, a host of a paranormal podcast, Shadowlands. It's Christina Callery. 217 episode of the Rattlecast. It's going to be the eve of Halloween, the night before Halloween, October 30th, next Monday. The regular time, though, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you get some creepy, fear based poems to share on the open lines. We'll put up some special music, I think, too. Oh, I little, love the special I music. I do have some fancy uh, bumper music here, which is still there from last year, so we'll still use the same one. But that is uh, next week's episode. Hope you join us. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>